God, we come here this morning. We are hungry for you. God, we hunger, we thirst, we yearn for your word. We want to hear from you, oh God. Lord, would you silence every voice that is not of you? God, we want to see Jesus. We want to see him as the greatest treasure in all the world. So Lord, would you use this passage, use your spirit to teach us, to conform us into the image of Jesus? Would you challenge us? Would you encourage us, we pray? Christ's name, amen. The topic of leadership is complex. Some would even say paradoxical. Uh, because on one hand, we appreciate, we desire good, healthy leadership. You could almost look at any healthy organization, healthy team, healthy community, and what you'll likely find is healthy leadership. But on the other hand, uh, sometimes we look at some leaders with a good deal of skepticism, even suspicion. We wonder uh, whether it's a political leader or a business leader or a leader in the community, are they truly who they say they are? Do they have any skeletons in their closet? And if so, are they going to come out? We wonder this from time to time because we're all too familiar with corrupt leaders, leaders who more or less were put on a pedestal but have fallen because of immorality, because of deception, because of corruption. The media, of course, loves to highlight those kinds of stories. So while on one hand we appreciate and we desire healthy leadership, on the other hand, there might be a little bit of cynicism when it comes to this topic of leadership because we've been disappointed by so many. It's important to kind of grasp and understand that we're somewhere on that spectrum here this morning when it comes to leadership because as we approach this passage in 1 Samuel chapter 2, uh, we do so soberly. This is a, a heavy, heavy passage. It's highlighting corruption in Israel's spiritual leadership. It almost feels like we're picking up the newspaper or turning on the news in our time period where we know the media loves to, to highlight leaders who are corrupt that have fallen. This is a, a snapshot, if you will, of the corruption and immorality that embodied Israel's leadership during this period. I keep coming back to the last verse in the book of Judges because it so very well sets up the setting and what God's people were kind of experiencing during this time. It says that Israel had no king and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. We can, of course, now apply that specifically and maybe especially to those who were in leadership over the nation of Israel. Last week, we studied Hannah's magnificent prayer in verses 1 through 2. We noticed that she commented on the arrogant in verse 3, the mighty in verse 4, the wicked in verse 9, all of the adversaries against God in verse 10. And we might expect that she was only talking about the Canaanites or the Philistines, some of God's direct enemies. And yet, what we're going to learn in this passage is that she was also talking about the priests of Israel, those responsible for the spiritual condition and direction of the nation. Reading a passage like this, or if you're an Israelite during this time period, you might be tempted to wonder, God, where are you? God, why aren't you working? Why aren't you intervening in a more obvious way? There's so much evil. There's so much wickedness. Yet what we're going to see is that God was on the move. God was at work. That in short, God was cleaning house. Now we're getting ahead of ourselves. Let's back up just a little bit. Let's understand first and foremost the corruption 
that was happening in the house of God. Verses 12 through 17. Uh, if you look at verse 11, though, it's a very important verse. It, it, on one hand, it's a transitional verse getting us from the story of Hannah to now the story of Eli, with Samuel being the link between them. We learn that Elkanah and Hannah, the, the parents of the little boy Samuel, go back home to Ramah. Samuel now is in, in the care of Eli, the main priest during this time. But notice verse 11. I want to highlight this because we're going to see a, a variation of this phrase all throughout this chapter. It says that the boy, referring to Samuel, was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, the priest. We're going to see that phrase, a variation of that phrase, three more times throughout this passage. And I'm highlighting it because every time it's setting up this consistent comparison between Samuel's growing ministry before the Lord and among God's people and Eli and his son's fallen ministry. So, so keep your eye on that phrase. I'm going to highlight it as we move through this chapter. So what's the situation like in Shiloh? What, what's the situation like under Eli's leadership? Well, verse 12 is a great summary. It says, now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. Now, we've seen this word worthless before. You remember chapter 1, verse 16? Hannah used that word. If you remember her first interaction with Eli the priest, she was pouring her heart out before the Lord, and Eli thought that she was drunk. And she's trying to explain herself. She said, no, no, I'm not drunk. I'm, I'm praying. Do not consider me a worthless woman. Chapter 1, verse 16. And so in sad irony, it's not Hannah who was worthless. It was Eli's sons who were worthless. Now, if you have the NIV in front of you, it translates this word as scoundrels, which is such an appropriate word for describing these two wicked sons. This word literally means rebellious. It means wicked. And they were worthless. Why? Because they did not know the Lord. Now, this is not due to ignorance. Of course, they knew of the Lord. They, they learned of him being priests here at the tabernacle. But this is actually an expression of defiance. What this is, this is referring to is that they were against God. Can you imagine that just for a moment? Can you imagine those that were in the role of leading God's people, the whole nation spiritually, were those who did not know the Lord, who actually set against God and his purposes. These are dark, dark days for God's people. These are days of despair. Let's get a little bit more into the details, though. Verses 13 through 17 highlight more of the corruption that took place in the house of God. But in order to understand how great of an offense this was, we need to realize that according to the Mosaic law in Leviticus 7, the priests were actually supposed to receive a specific portion of the animal sacrifice that was being made. They, they were to receive the breast and the right thigh. That was uh, supposed to happen just to sustain the priest, to kind of feed the priest, to take care of the priest. In addition, part of the requirement of that sacrifice, that the fats of the animal, that sacrifice, was to be burned to the Lord, to, to honor God, to give him the first and the best. Hophni and Phinehas are not doing that. They're doing the exact opposite of that. They are exploiting God's people and robbing from God. And what's more, they have their servant do the dirty work for, for them. This, this servant who has the, the three-pronged uh, fork, 
what would happen is he would go in as the worshipers were preparing the sacrifice in their, their, their uh, pot or kettle, and the servant would plunge that three-pronged fork into there, and whatever he removed, that whatever meat came up, he would then give that to the priests. Okay, they were stealing from God's people. They were gluttonous. They, they were greedy. But then it gets even worse. See, the fat that was reserved in honor of God to be given to the Lord, they also take that cut as well. And if, they, if the worshiper refused, well, the servant and, and Hophni and Phinehas, they would threaten to take it by force. You have to understand how despicable this is, both exploiting God's people, robbing from God, instead of rightly facilitating this sacred sacrifice to atone for sins, Hophni and Phinehas were committing a great sin. And it was happening time and time and time again. Verse 17 it summarizes, condemning their actions. It says their sin was very great, treating the Lord's offering with contempt problem was that they were running the tabernacle. problem is that God's people had nowhere to go, nowhere else to go to worship and to make appropriate sacrifices. They did not care about God's people. They defied God and served themselves. Feel your eyes wander down to verse 22. It gets even worse. We learn that Hophni and Phinehas were sleeping with the women that were serving at the tent of meeting. They turned God's house into a brothel. They were absolutely evil. Look, these verses, I think, are meant to shock us. I hope that you feel that. I hope that there's something going on in your spirit, in your heart, as we're learning about the spiritual leaders of, of, of God's people during this time period and the wickedness, the, the evil acts that they were committing. This is meant to kind of shake us up. We, we have to realize this is, this is Israel. This is God's chosen people. God chose them to be a holy people set apart from every nation, every people of the earth. And this is Shiloh. This is the specific place for the holy tabernacle would reside so God's dwelling presence could be with God's people. And these are the priests, priests of the Lord. They were tasked with the serious duty of teaching God's people the law and making appropriate sacrifices to atone for the sins of God's people. This is absolutely despicable what is happening here. You almost read this and you wonder, what is God doing? Where is he in all of this? And yet what we're going to see here pretty soon is that while God may have been silent, he was still on the move. He's moving behind the scenes, yes, and he's not, you know, throwing fire down from, from heaven upon Eli's sons, but he's orchestrating some things behind the scenes in the shadows here. And it takes us to the next part in the story, verses 18 through 21. There is finally some hope in all of this. Again, in the midst of the darkest days in Israel's history, God is quietly uh, perhaps providing new and godly leadership for his people. Verse 18, we have the second occurrence of that phrase. It says Samuel was ministering uh, uh, before the Lord. We look at verse 18, there's a, a new description that's included here. It says that he was wearing a linen ephod. This is exactly what the priests were supposed to be wearing. Okay, Now understand what's happening here. There is an intentional comparison between Samuel 
and Eli and his sons. Eli and his wicked sons are committing evil deeds as God's priests in Shiloh in comparison now to Samuel, this young boy who's ministering before the Lord, who is acting and looking like the true priest. This intentional comparison and really this intentional progression in Samuel's ministry uh, has a purpose behind it. I want you to just compare verse 18 with verse 11 for a moment. Verse 11, we are told, Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. Now look at verse 18. Samuel's still described as ministering to the Lord, but there's no mention of Eli the priest. And it's Samuel who's wearing the clothes of the priest. We're going to see this continued progression of Samuel, this continued contrast, because it's setting us up for a climatic moment in the story. We go on here, and we see perhaps another contrast between the abusive behavior of, of Hophni and Phinehas compared to the tender care and compassion of Samuel's parents. Elkanah and, and Hannah, they're again at Shiloh, Elkanah leading his family well yearly, going to Shiloh to make sacrifices and, and worship the Lord. But here, Hannah is now bringing a little robe uh, for uh, her boy Samuel, probably each year making it a little bit bigger and bigger. You have to wonder what those visits, those yearly visits were like. Verse 20, we find Eli blessing Elkanah and Hannah. Uh, we see the Lord opening her womb. She ends up having five more children. But then again, another important detail in verse 21, notice it says the boy, referring to Samuel, grew in the presence of the Lord, or quite literally grew with the Lord. Samuel is not only learning what it looks like to be a priest, he is learning to be a priest. He's learning to be with God, growing in spiritual maturity. Well, we move to verses 22 and 26, and the attention is now put on Eli, main priest at this time. He's the father of these two wicked sons. And our perception of Eli is probably a mixed bag at this point. All right, we see him blessing Elkanah and Hannah. Uh, we see Samuel appears to be thriving under his care. But our first encounter with Eli was underwhelming at best, right? He thought that Hannah, who was praying in desperation, was, was drunk, Right? So it kind of gives us a, maybe a yellow flag about, do you know what desperate prayer actually looks like? Like, what condition are you in? We're going to learn that, uh, that, that Eli was very overweight, that he was also participating in the stolen meat here at these sacrifices. But what does he do with his evil sons? How does he respond? He, in verse 22, we, we know that Eli knew everything that was happening. He kept hearing story after story. All of Israel was hearing of this. Well, in verses 23 through 25, Eli does two things. First, he confronts them, says, why are you doing these evil things? Which is good. Secondly, he warns them of the seriousness of what they are doing, which is also very good. But what he fails to do, he fails to discipline them. He fails to fully correct his sons. He does not remove them. As priests of the Lord, he does not publicly condemn their actions. No, this is a lackluster correction at best. This is a simple slap on the wrist. There's no surprise, verse 25 tells us that his sons did not listen to their father. Uh, but then it says, 
for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. That's a strange phrase. Notice what it does not say, though. It doesn't say they would not listen to the voice of their father, and as a result, it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. It doesn't say that. It says they did not listen to Eli for or because it was God's will to put them to death. What in the world does this mean? Well, it surely does not mean that the blame for Hophni and Phinehas' sin is to be put on God. No, we are responsible for our actions, including our sin. Or rather, this means that God had given them up, given them over to their contempt for God and his ways. That they were so far deep into their sin that their hearts were so hardened that they were now beyond the possibility of repentance. I know that's heavy to hear. I know that that's a lot to maybe take in. Some of us are wondering, wait, that's a possibility? So maybe let's back up just for a moment. Understand verse 25 in the larger context. What have we seen so far of Hophni and Phinehas? What we have seen is their persistent and continual rebellion against God. These are wicked and evil sins that they are committing as priests of the Lord that they continued again and again and again and again. And so because of that, the consequences of their sin, God is going to put them to death, already decided. So therefore, they could not listen to Eli's plea. Now, what does this show us? This shows us that it is possible for someone to be so firm in their sin, so deep into their sin, that God will eventually confirm them in it. That God will give them up. God will give them over, as Romans 1 says, to their sin in full. And so much so that they will be completely deaf spiritually and unmoved to hear any types of warnings of judgment or pleas for repentance. Like, I know this is heavy. I know that that is a dangerous, dangerous place to be. And we'll see that God's will will come to fruition here in chapter 4 with the death of Hophni and Phinehas because of their continued rebellion. This is not a reality we like to talk about. We say, we rightly say, and we believe that God can save anyone at any time. That's true according to God's sovereign will. But at the same time, it is possible to have one's heart so hardened, so persistent in sin, rejecting God's grace time and time again, that they are now beyond the possibility of repentance. Again, unbelievable to get to that place, but we see this throughout the Bible. See it in the example of Pharaoh in Exodus, of of the hardening of his heart. You see it, like I mentioned a minute ago, Romans 1, verses 24, 26, and 28. Three different times it mentions that God gives them over. God gives them over. God gives them over to their sin, their persistent sin. But then you also see it in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. We're told, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, have shared in the Holy Spirit, have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, then have fallen away 
to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. This is a perfect description of what has happened to Hophni and Phinehas, that their sin consisted of contempt, not only for God, but for the very means that God had provided for their salvation to atone for their sins. They are now beyond repentance. But again, the hardness of their heart, that was their choice and also God's judgment for their choice and continued rebellion. Now, we must also, I think, be careful as we consider this being a possibility that the right response is not to ask the question, okay, at what point in sin's progress is one beyond uh, the possibility of repentance? Right? That is not the correct answer. If your mind's going there, like, how far can we get to the line before you've passed over and you can no longer turn back from your sin? It's not the right response. The right response, if we're correctly understanding what's happening here and the seriousness of sin, is to be broken over our sin, is to be contrite over the sin that's in our lives, however big, however small, to be horrified about the sin that's in our lives and to throw ourselves upon the mercy of God, to claim the promise in 1 John 1, 9 that says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and he will forgive us of all of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that's because of Jesus. That's because Jesus took our sin. He paid our penalty so that forgiveness is a possibility. Like the correct response is to take sin seriously in our own lives. We see that in this very example. We'll come back to that in a moment. We got to move on. I want to point out yet again, shining hope. Verse 26 says, now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. It's the fourth occurrence of that phrase. We see again, progression in Samuel's ministry not only gaining favor with the Lord, but also with God's people. You have to wonder, as we're reading the story, could he be part of God's solution for the nation of Israel? Could he be part of what God is doing here? Well, we move on to verses 27 and 36, and we see this ominous prophecy from an unnamed man of God. After an ineffective attempt to correct his sons, God sends a prophet to Eli, pronouncing judgment upon himself, upon his household, and his family line. This unnamed prophet berates Eli for a number of things. But first, he, he calls him out. He says, you're forgetting how gracious God had been to you and your forefathers in revealing himself to you. You have forgotten about the privilege it is to be part of the priesthood of God, this gift that God gave to your fathers, most likely, this is a reference to Aaron, back in Moses' day in Exodus, that Eli was a descendant of Aaron's fourth son. And we know from Exodus 29 verse 9 that the priesthood was given by God to Aaron and his sons. It was just being passed on from one generation to the next. Eli had forgotten these wonderful things. According to verse 29, he had honored his sons above honoring God. It's really, when you get to the root of it, we're starting to see 
What's going on in Eli's heart? He's taking a good thing, his children, his sons, and he's elevating a good thing over God, making a good thing ultimate. That for Eli, blood was thicker than faithfulness to God. Judgment is coming. This prophet pronounces judgment on the house of Eli in three ways. Verse 32, Eli will be the last old man in his line. Secondly, both his sons will die on the same day, according to verse 34, which we'll see in chapter 4. And then thirdly, Eli's family line, those who survive will be reduced to poverty, according to verse 36. Catch the irony there. The ones who fattened themselves, again, Eli was very overweight. Those who fattened themselves on stolen sacrificial meat will one day beg for food. This is likely a fulfillment of even Hannah's prayer from verse 5. Judgment is coming. God is cleaning house. But then, I don't want to end on that note, but then... We move to verses 35 and 36, and this unnamed prophet goes on to provide a significant promise. If you look at verses 35 and 36, it says that God will raise up for himself a faithful priest. Now, you have to wonder, who is this faithful priest, right? You have to wonder, who, who is this, who's he talking about here? And, and for sure, you know, our mind probably goes immediately to Samuel. Right, we see Samuel being raised by priests. He's, he's wearing the ephod, which is what priests wore. Uh, he performs many priestly-like duties throughout the book uh, for Samuel. And even though all that's true, Samuel's primary role is more of a prophet, though. We're going to see that in chapter 3 in the calling upon his life as he uh, basically was the last judge and a prophet for the nation of Israel. So maybe you get hints of Samuel fulfilling that prophecy, but I don't think that's what this is referring to. I think if we zoomed out just for a moment, we see this promise of a faithful priest being fulfilled in 1 Kings chapter 2 and the appointed priest named Zadok. Now, Zadok, he was appointed by King Solomon, one of David's sons. And King Solomon's outside the scope of our study in 1 Samuel, but in 1 Kings chapter 2, Verses 26 through 27, we see King Solomon remove a priest whose name was Abiathar, who was a descendant of Eli, removes him and installs a new priest in a new family line of priesthood. His name is Zadok. And even in that passage, it references what happened here in 1 Samuel 2. This is likely what this is referring to, but at the same time, how could we not think of Jesus here? How could we not think that this faithful priest that's being prophesied here is not fully and ultimately fulfilled in Jesus, right? Because even, even in these verses, verse 35, the word anointed again is used. This word in the Hebrew means Messiah. I think this in full, it's ultimately fulfilled in Jesus, who is the perfectly faithful priest, Zadok's priestly line, it stops at the exile, but we know Jesus's priestly status will endure forevermore. Hebrews tells us that, that we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. 
For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. See, I think this is ultimately pointing to Jesus because unlike Hophni and Phinehas, who were wicked and sinful, Jesus was holy and innocent. Unlike Hophni and Phinehas, who were self-serving, they were self-indulgent, Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That Jesus being the ultimate faithful high priest, he came not to, not to seek for his own welfare like these, these garbage of a priest, but Jesus came and he died on the cross for his people. That he died making a way for us to be forgiven. He gave up his own life in order for us to have salvation. See, as amazing as Samuel is and will be, and we'll see that, as faithful as Zadok was as a, as a high priest or a faithful priest, Jesus is even greater. Jesus is better. Hebrews 7 even says this about Christ. It says, but he, referring to Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus is able to save anyone who draws near to God, who humbles themselves, who acknowledges their need for a Savior, who says, I can't save myself. I can't save myself through my own good works, through my own church attendance, can only be saved through putting my faith in Jesus, trusting in Jesus and what he has accomplished for me on the cross and in his resurrection, that God will save them. Jesus is our faithful high priest. Well, before we close, let me highlight a couple of applications for us. There's many applications, implications from this passage, but Let me draw our attention to three of them before we close. The first one here is to understand the great danger in tolerating sin. Surely there's a direct application here to avoid tolerating sin in the lives of those who are in leadership. Surely that's a direct connection there. And I don't know exactly what happened among God's people if they just grew to accept the sin that was happening in Eli and, his, and Eli's sons. They just said, okay, that, that's just what God's people do. Uh, and or if there was no healthy mechanism to confront them, to hold them accountable, we're not exactly sure, but, but surely an application is to avoid tolerating sin in those in leadership. But I believe that we can also apply this personally and individually in our own lives. You know, we see the danger of Eli personally, allowing sin to just go on in his own life and in the lives of of his own sons without taking the necessary and even extreme measures to removing the sin from from their lives. Like we know he knew everything that was happening, but for Eli, he honored his boys above honoring God. And on one hand, we can maybe understand the rationalization that was probably going through Eli's mind, both as a priest and as a father, thinking, well, you know, my sons, they're around spiritual things a lot. They're at the tabernacle every day. They're doing the, 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 the sacrifices and the worship and the prayer. Eventually, 
they're going to turn it around. You know, they're just boys being boys. Or maybe he thought, well, what can I do? I can't change man's heart. That, that, that's something only God can do. We, we don't know exactly what was running through his mind, but he did tolerate that sin and not fully discipline them. That for Eli, his sons were more dear to him than his own God. And my question for us today is, what is it for you? What is it for you that you're perhaps holding more dear than your own God? Uh, could it be your own children? We've talked many times before that it's possible to make our children, our idols, put them above God. You know, these good gifts from the Lord, these blessings from the Lord to make them ultimate. It's very possible. It's very common, actually. And maybe even specifically with Eli's problem, maybe some of us have fallen off the horse of rightly disciplining our kids because we'd rather be liked than be a faithful parent. Or maybe it's not children for you. What is it that you're honoring, that you're valuing, that you're enjoying more than God that's actually leading you to tolerating sin? Look, if there's a direct application from this chapter, it is the necessity to take sin seriously. It is the necessity to take any measure, however extreme it might be, to removing the sin and putting it to death in our lives. I just wonder if some of us are here today out of the providence of God that you're not here by accident. You're, you're here on a Sunday morning in February listening to a passage on 1 Samuel 2, some Old Testament passage, these events happening 3,000 years ago, and yet you're not here by accident. You're here because of the sovereign hand of God. And could it be that some of us are here because in your own life, you're tolerating sin and not putting it to death? Could it be that some of us are here this morning because you need to be reminded from the pulpit here this morning to stop playing around with fire, to put the sin to death in your life. Don't domesticate it. Don't allow it to linger. Put it to death by confessing it and repenting and throwing yourself on the mercy of God. Look, could it be that's why you're here today? Could it be that you need to be reminded that the longer you tolerate sin in your life, the easier it is to forget how badly sin stinks. Look, it's possible for our spiritual nostrils, if you will, to become desensitized. But understand this, sin is always destructive. It's always evil. Tolerance of it doesn't change that. But listen, the longer you allow sin to go on in your life, the easier it is to forget that it's even there. That's one of the effects that continued persistent sin has. It blinds us to its own damaging effects. And could you be here this morning out of God's mercy, not judgment, out of God's mercy, to be here this morning and to hear a message calling you to bring that sin into the light. That's what I'm doing right now in this moment. I am calling you, if you're tolerating sin in your life, I'm calling you to take a stand. 
to, to say today is the day where it stops. That unlike Eli, unlike Eli's sons, that today you will take any measure, how extreme it needs to be, you will take a stand today and you will say that it stops. Because if not, sin will always take you farther than you want to go. And we see this warning here, this ability to tolerate sin. You'll be held accountable before the Lord. He is a just God. I know it's hard to move on from that point, but here's the second application. is to be careful of developing contempt toward the things of God. These are connected. Uh, verse 18, again, the summary verdict against Eli's sons, they treated the offering of the Lord with contempt, and their sin was very great. Contempt means to have a disdain or to consider something or someone worthless. I think applying it to the things of the Lord, it's even having an apathy. It's even lacking an appropriate awe and reverence towards the things of God. And you do have to wonder, how, how in the world did Hophni and Phinehas get to this point? Uh, their, their daddy was the main priest. They were around all of these things. And you have to wonder if part of the issue here was the familiarity that they had, the familiarity with all of the spiritual activity. They were at the tabernacle all the time. They saw all of these sacrifices and the worship and the prayer. You do have to wonder if the familiarity even led to contempt. We know that that's not uncommon in our own lives. That's why that phrase is so popular, familiarity breeds contempt. Uh, on a superficial level, we have that experience in other areas of our lives, like food, for example. You have your favorite restaurant, and you utterly exhaust it by going to it every single day for 30 days on end. This isn't a personal confession time, but we know that's possible. Right? You get to the point where it loses its wow factor. Ah, I'm not going there anymore. I'm done with that place. We do that with other things. Look, we probably need to be warned that it's possible to even do that with the Lord. Some of you might have even experienced this in your own life. You've experienced that, man, just having the familiarity of these spiritual things, it leads you into kind of this rut where you just kind of go through the motions. You don't stop and consider who it is that you're interacting with. And that would be my challenge for us as we think about all of these graces that God gives us, prayer, scripture reading, fellowship with believers, church, worship, all of these things. My challenge for us, and this is a particular challenge for me as a pastor where I'm literally around spiritual things all the time. What I have to do sometimes is I have to, before I pray, before I read scripture, before I go to church, I have to remind myself just quickly, 10 seconds of who it is that I'm interacting with to stop and think, I am praying or I'm reading, I'm interacting with the living God, the, the Holy One, the one who has made heaven and earth, that I get to interact with him in this moment. And, and just that quick reminder just wakes me up. It, it helps me, man, don't go through the motions here. Don't just check this box. You're, remember who you're encountering. It's God, the one who has existed before time began. That'd be my challenge for you, is to take that and just apply that in your own life to protect yourself from familiarity, potentially leading to contempt towards the things of God. 
And then thirdly, I'll close with this, is to look for ways that God is at work, even in the quiet ways. And I might even add, especially in the quiet ways. Rightly so, this passage, when you read it, it makes us sick. What, what happened here, the wickedness, the evil, you do wonder, where is God in all of this, such obvious evil? And yet, what we have seen throughout this passage is that God was at work. He was working behind the scenes. He was moving in the small and mundane and, 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 and quiet moments of just slowly raising up Samuel to be the solution that Israel needed. And it's so easy to miss that, isn't it? It's so easy to read this passage. What's front and center is the evil. What's front and center is the toleration of sin. What's front and center is their sin. And yet in the backdrop, you see the faithfulness of God slowly, quietly raising up a solution, demonstrating his great faithfulness. Look, God is not always speaking and moving and working in loud or obvious ways. As much as we would want him to do that, that's not his go-to mechanism or strategy. Oh, and in those moments, it's easy to think that God's abandoned us, God's forgotten us. And yet this passage reminds us that God is always working. He's always moving. And while our focus might be completely on the evil or the sin or the unanswered questions, the application here, is to train the eyes of our hearts to not miss the small, faithful, quiet, mundane, and consistent acts of God in our lives, that he is faithfully and consistently working. Not loud and obvious all the time, but he's always at work in the, in the lives of his people. It's easy to become alarmed and dismayed at all of the Hophni's and Phineas's going on in our lives to the point where we miss these little moments of, of little Samuel at Shiloh coming in and around our lives. God is always working. We need to train ourselves to see his faithfulness on display. And so because of that, and just because of the heaviness of this message and this passage, I want to take just a couple of minutes here before we move into singing. And I just want to give us just a moment of just silence, just between you and the Lord, just a time of reflection. Perhaps we need to commit ourselves to slowing down, just quieting the noise and redirecting our heart away from the distractions of life, away from the Hophni's and Phineas's and to be in tune with the many ways that God is at work, that God is faithful, to be reminded that you have a faithful high priest who is always living to intercede for his people. I just want to give us a couple of minutes to reflect, maybe take some of these application points and apply them right now in this moment, maybe to confess sin, repent of sin, and throw yourself on the mercy of God. Let's do that over the next couple of minutes. I'll close this in prayer. God, we declare as a church that you are God and there is no other. There is none like you, O oh God. You perfectly embody both justice and mercy. 
Lord, you on one hand, you hate sin, you hate darkness, and yet on the other, Lord, you provide grace and mercy in and through Jesus Christ. And Lord, we thank you for that. We do not take that for granted, the work that Jesus did on the cross, accomplishing something that we could never accomplish on our own. That God, you made a way when there was no way, there was no other option to be saved and to be forgiven, only through Jesus and the death on the cross. We thank you, oh Jesus, that you are king, that you reign supreme. And Lord, I pray that you would continue to work in the lives of your people here at Pennington Park Church, that you would help us, oh God, to take sin seriously. Lord, we know you hate it. Lord, help us to hate it all the more, to repent of it. Lord, would you shine a light where it is in our lives so we can apply the grace that is available in Jesus and to walk in freedom and to walk in the light. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.